This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. Dr. Canadiana Podcast, Episode 3. Why is 1967 such a thing? Today's episode will be in two parts. To begin, I will discuss the Massey Commission and the changes it brought to art and culture in Canada during the second half of the 20th century and beyond. Then I will talk about what happened in the centennial year of 1967. Part 1. The Massey Commission and what came from it. True confession time. I've read the Massey Report more than once. I've studied the red-bound copy of it in the government publication area of Robarts Library. I've made photocopies of the sections on museums and libraries and theaters and annotated them with marginalia and post-it notes and multicolored pencils. So I know what it's like to have read an old-fashioned government document written in the first part of the last century. I know it can feel hard and weird and foreign. This is one of the reasons I asked you to read it too, to get the vibe of the time. The Massey Report is the colloquial name for the 1951 Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences, written by Vincent Massey. That is my cat buddy. The Massey Report, the Massey Report, concerns itself with the definition of a Canadian culture and the ways in which to support its growth and development across Canada, its provinces, and communities. The preamble to the report states, quote, that it is desirable that the Canadian people should know as much as possible about their country, its history and traditions, and about their national life and common achievements, that it is in the national interest to give encouragement to institutions which express national feeling, promote common understanding, and add to the variety and richness of Canadian life, rural as well as urban." End quote. The overall intention of the report was to create a cohesive idea of culture and identity for the whole country. The notion of a cohesive national Canadian identity has preoccupied Canada and Canadians since almost the minute Cartier set fit on Micmac land in the province we now call PEI. Who are we? How are we distinct? What gives us our Canadianness? Overall, the 1950 answer was not American. And so what the Commission is saying in its preamble is that it is in Canada's national interest to spend money on institutions that express national feeling and promote common understanding. In this way, the Massey Commission not only begins an era of strong government support for culture, but also along the way determines what is and is not our cultural heritage. Which means the people of the Massey Commission are some of Canadian canon's earliest deciders. Okay, so how was this done? How did the Commission do its work? Also, who was Vincent Massey? Vincent Massey was a lot of different things. A lawyer, a businessman. He was Canada's first Governor General to be from Canada and not an Englishman. He had been a diplomat and the Dean of Victoria College at U of T. His charitable Massey Foundation, founded in 1926, funded arts and culture projects. Hart House Theatre was named in honor of his son, Hart. Massey Hall, Massey College, and the Massey Lectures were named for him. He died in 1967, which feels a little bit on the nose for a vanguard in Canadian national identity. 
Massey was also a product of his time and place in history, and many of his social views and opinions are pretty offensive now. They were often offensive then. But we are studying him here because when it comes to the Canadian canon and its many disciplines, he was the decider. He got to pick. What is in the canon was often his choice. And how did he do this? This is the thing. I've always thought the way the Massey Commission went about its project to determine what Canadian culture and art was, was kind of cool, considering the time and place it was happening. The commission, which also included social scientist Georges-Henri Lévesque, historian Hilda Neatby, university president Norman Mackenzie, and an engineer named Arthur Surveyor, held public hearings all across Canada about culture and art starting in 1949. People came to these public meetings from across Canada to advocate for what they thought should be included in the definition of Canadian culture and art. There were performances of music, dance, and theater from indigenous people from across the provinces and territories, people from settler communities, for example, Ukrainian settlers on the prairies of Saskatchewan or Alberta, the Finnish from Northern Ontario, the Scottish from Southern Ontario, Acadians in the Maritimes, many Quebecois. The public hearings and collection of information took over a year, and when the report was released, its primary recommendations were to provide funding for national arts institutions like theaters, museums, and libraries, to support universities, to prevent Canada's brightest scholars from seeking out American or British educations increase the budget for the CBC to expand into television. Overall, the message was that without strengthened government funding in supporting authentic Canadian cultural development, Canada's own identity would be subsumed by popular American culture. The report was generally well received. However, Franco-Canadiens did accuse the commission of privileging elite Anglophone conservative culture at the expense of Quebec's historical contribution to Canada. At the time, Aboriginal people did voice their concern over the lack of representation in the document, but true to the attitudes of that era, not much was made of their complaints. So what happened? Well, not very much, and also quite a lot. The government did put money into several of the recommendations, but as with most things, it was happy to support the commission's suggestion in theory, but not actually with money. After all, money is the way government shows real support, yeah? What did it support? For our discussion, the most important thing that came from the Massey Commission report was the creation of Canada Council for the Encouragement of Arts, Letters, Humanities, and Social Sciences, or the Canada Council. Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent said, quote, Our main object in recommending the establishment of the Canada Council is to provide some assistance to universities, to the arts, humanities, and social sciences, as well as to students in those fields, without attempting in any way to control their activities or to tamper with the freedom. Governments should, I feel, support the cultural development of the nation, but not attempt to control it, end quote. The council is therefore an arm's length institution, which means it is an independent body accountable to the parliament through the Minister of Canadian Heritage. Why is this important? 
Well, the Canada Arts Council supports all of the art created in Canada in one way or another. A Tribe Called Red, Canada Council Grant. Stratford Festival, Canada Council Grant. As John Ibbotson points out, the institutions that flourished post-Massey in the Canada Council model, CBC, Canadian Book Publishing, CRTC, and its Canadian Content Rules for Broadcast, gave us Leonard Cohen and Margaret Atwood and Alice Monroe, Joni Mitchell and Sarah McLaughlin and Drake, Robert Lepage and Cirque du Soleil and Xavier Dolan, end quote. Government funding of the arts in Canada has played a role in the development of theatre, literature, movies, television, and music since 1957. I'll give you my favourite example of how this works. The CRTC, or the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, was founded in 1968 and was guided by a rule called Canadian Content, or CanCon. This rule stated that within a week of radio or television broadcast, 20% of the content must be Canadian. So what does this mean? In the 1970s, it meant that people heard a lot of the same Gordon Lightfoot or Anne Murray or Bachman Turner Overdrive songs. A lot. There wasn't a great deal of music made by Canadians that fit into the rock, folk, or pop mandates of radio stations across Canada at the time, which meant the artists and bands who did have records were played over and over again to fulfill the CanCon rule. This also meant that record companies now had an incentive to sign and record Canadian artists. A new record by a Canadian band would get played just to create some variety and break up the monotony on the radio. And so the CanCon rules meant that my mom and dad heard Read My Mind by Gordon Lightfoot or Suzanne by Leonard Cohen or You Needed Me by Anne Murray six times a day for most of the 70s. But it also meant that by the time Carly Rae Jepsen, Drake, Alicia Cara, Justin Bieber, The Weeknd, Shawn Mendes, and more came on the radio, it felt less like listening out of a patriotic duty and more like just listening to the radio. It took, took about 20 years. It was in the 90s when the ladies of Canadian radio, Celine, Shania, Sarah, as well as bands like the Tragically Hip and God Help Us All, Nickelback, created a musical landscape that set up what we have now, a real actual music industry that is both very Canadian and very international. Now, this does not mean that CanCon rules or Canada Council grants or CBC funding has not gone without criticism. And the critiques are valid. And it comes down to some of the same issues from episode two. Who makes the rules? Who picks who chooses? Who decided who is getting the government money and who is not? But I will conclude part one of this podcast by saying that I think you can easily draw a straight line between the 1951 Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences and our boy Aubrey, October's very own. Today's podcast is brought to you by Canada's best and only Butter Tart subscription service, Butter Tart. That's spelled B-T-T-R-T-R-T. For just six toonies a month, you can get a weekly Butter Tart delivered to your house. That's right, Canada's famous sweet treat, once a week. If you sign up this week, use promo code CANCON for 15% off. Butter Tart, have it with a cup of tea. Part 2. 
Canada is a hundred, so we better figure out who we are, or 1967 and the Centennial Projects. In 1967, my mom's family took their last vacation as a unit of two parents and four daughters. My mom, their oldest, was 20 and long out of the house, but she flew home from London, England, because Expo 67 in Montreal was so exciting she couldn't miss it. Expo 67, the largest and most international of Canada's centennial celebrations, was planned and promoted for years leading up to its opening day, April 28, 1967. The event in Montreal attracted 50 million visitors over a six-month period. Reporting on Expo 67, the Paris newspaper Le Figaro suggested that Canada has attained adulthood. And feature article in Time magazine announced, Canada discovers itself. This seems to indicate that it wasn't just Canada that was thinking about Canada's place in the world. The identity project that began 16 years earlier with the release of the Massey Report was intensifying. I mentioned that Expo was a centennial celebration, but there was another kind of national celebration happening across Canada, the Centennial Projects. The term Centennial Project has become kind of a shorthand to talk about the flurry of buildings, festivals, events, plays, books and music that were produced in celebration of the 100th anniversary of Confederation, as well as the vast and diverse artistic and cultural landscape of Canada. But properly, a Centennial Project was one funded by a government Centennial Grant, which were distributed by the 1963 Centennial Commission, put together by Prime Minister Lester Pearson. Yes, the airport is named after him. Towns and cities across Canada, armed with matching grants, set out to build monuments and arenas, to compile local histories and to found local heritage associations, to identify and record their unique Canadianness for posterity. Here are some of the things that were funded in the name of the centennial and Canadian identity. A new and distinctly Canadian typeface called Cartier. The Carabana Parade and Festival in Toronto, which was launched in 1967 as a celebration of Caribbean culture and as a gift from Canada's West Indian community in tribute to the centennial year. The Ontario Science Centre. The Waskahegan Trail in Alberta, more than 300 kilometers of terrain developed in and around Edmonton to promote hiking opportunities in the capital region. Many concert halls, libraries, streets with Centennial in the name, like Centennial College. That is Buddy, and he agrees. All of these tributes were successful and are still around today. Let me mention one that was not successful. One that was named a disaster moments after it was first seen. One that is so bad, so terrible, it was called a failure. It was a play. It was some Canadian theatre. As the government financed many cultural innovations, including a new National Arts Centre, it also commissioned a new bilingual play to be offered free to amateur companies across Canada. The Centennial Play, it was called was cobbled together by a group of prominent Canadian writers, one from each of the five regions of Canada. The authors were Robertson Davies, Arthur Murphy, Eve Terrio, W.O. Mitchell, and Eric Nichol. Despite their enormous collective talents, these playwrights were attempting something extremely difficult. One Ottawa journalist wrote, they were trying to design a horse by committee.
The group worked for four years, and the work premiered on January 11, 1967, with the Prime Minister, the Governor-General, and other Canadian luminaries in the audience. And it was a total mess. Apparently, the opening party was very somber. The play was so bad that the plan to have it tour all over the country was immediately scrapped. I got a lot of this information for this section from an article on ottawalittletheatre.ca titled Centennial Play, A Total Failure. Yikes. This doesn't bode well for the development of a distinctly Canadian drama and theatre movement, does it? Or? In the years immediately following Centennial, an increasingly solid idea about Canadian identity and what it might look like inspired writers to dramatize both the richness and the cultural cracks of Canadian society. This was when plays like Michel Tremblay's Les Belles Sœurs, George Riga's The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, and Creeps by David Freeman, and collective creations like The Farm Show in 1837, A Farmer's Revolt, were written and devised. We will learn about these artistic innovations in Episode 4, Collective Creations, and Episode 6, Canadian Playwrights. We will come to see that the Canadian plays were not doomed to failure, and in fact, the instinct to develop them by committee was often a good one. Until next time, eh? Some sources I used in the development of this episode include the 1951 Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences, Canadian Encyclopedia entries on Vincent Massey, Expo 67, and Centennial Funding, the Canadian Council website, the article Centennial Play, A Total Failure on ottawalittletheatre.com, John Ibbotson's Globe and Mail article titled Governments Can Regulate Culture, The Question Is, Should We? I also used a sample from Controla off Drake's groundbreaking 2016 album, Views. <laughs>